This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, January 18th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Ahead today on our show, the first episode of the fourth season of our podcast, Undisciplined, drops today. And we'll hear an excerpt, a conversation about the NFL, the safety of its players, and how that safety can have an impact on the players' careers. That's in about 15 minutes. First up, the Arkansas legislature and health care. Much of the discussion for the first week of the 94th General Assembly has been about education and new Governor Sanders' possible approaches to reforming education. But lawmakers have to consider another major part of the state budget, health care. Recently, Senator Missy Irvin, a Republican from Mountain View and the chair of the Senate Public Health Committee, sat down with Roby Brock from our partner Talk Business and Politics to talk about health matters, including the unwinding of continuous enrollment in Medicaid that was put into place during the pandemic. So we have, we operate in Medicaid under the FMAP, which is the federal medical federal medical assistance program. And so that split between state share, state revenue and federal revenue is about 70-30. So right now, 70 feds, 30 70 state. Feds, 30 state. Um, because of the public health emergency that has risen to about 77.51%. And so with every 1% swing, is about $65 million in state wow. general revenue. So you can see that we're actually saving a lot of money because the federal government's picking up more of the tab. So that lessens the, the reliance on state revenue. But once the public health emergency is over, that swing goes back to that 70-30 split versus the 77 we're getting now. So that is lots of ramifications fiscally uh, for how we unroll that and unwind that. What will basically then, happen is people will come off the Medicaid roll. Correct. So they're not automatically correct. enrolled anymore. Correct. Because during the public health emergency, it was frozen. So mm-hmm. you can't remove anybody from the Medicaid rolls, even if they're not eligible, yeah. which doesn't make any sense to but me. We'll see people coming off the rolls yes, in a we will. pretty dramatic yes. fashion. But so. interestingly enough, of the about 1 million that are in Medicaid right now, nearly 477,000 of them are children. You have about 340,000 in our home and you have clear almost 477,000 of children and then uh, about 317 are in your traditional Medicaid uh, program. Do we, will we need any kind of temporary waiver, do you think, from the feds? Do you anticipate something coming? I, I really think that the federal government through CMS is going to try to figure out a structure to wean everybody down from that enhanced FMAP uh, match. And that's the only way that I think everybody in the country is going to have to unwind from it fiscally. Um, and, and I think the federal government is, is, is moving through that process. If they're not, you know, definitely we would need to probably act that way. Do you think that there's going to be, I mean, do you think the financial ramifications from what we'll lose from the feds, you still have people coming off, do you think it's going to stay in financial balance of some sort? Or do you think yeah. the state's going to be on the hook for tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, or maybe we come out better as a result of all of this change. I I don't know the answer to that. Well, so many people don't, but what I can say in healthcare policy, particularly with the Medicaid programs that we have, it is very, very important that you look at both the healthcare policy aspect, also the fiscal policy aspect, because of the dependency and the co-mingling of the federal government's money with the state's money. And so, you know, that that churn that is a happening yeah. in our state economy equates to about $9 billion. And so this churn, and I think it was $3 billion in just the healthcare economy, it was about $3 billion over five years. 
So when you start to make changes, you really have to take in totality what that is going to do to the entire state economy and particularly to the healthcare economy. And I would argue that a lot of what we've done, particularly with our home and different programs has really stabilized that healthcare economy that it was in place to serve people in rural Arkansas during the pandemic. And those rural hospitals and critical access hospitals, even the mid-sized hospitals are still reeling and trying to catch up from COVID, you know, because they couldn't do elective surgeries. They had to just shut everything down. You know, your reimbursement level for a COVID visit didn't raise any. That's really the so key though, is it's the, a key. The, the Medicaid and yes. Medicare reimbursement rate at the federal level have not changed correct. in a long time. That's, That's what's correct. causing the rural hospital and yes. some urban hospital, yes. uh, suburban Issues. hospital problems right now. Absolutely. That's not something the state can fix. No, no, we, we can change the Medicaid rates, but but not very much. I mean, there's there has been a rate review that, you know, Governor Hutchinson put in place by executive order, um, but that has been systematic and we have made some changes there. But but generally those are very tied in and locked in. And um, and so we have to just always understand that landscape for healthcare because you have such a mixture of, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance, self-insured, um, and so all of that is very complicated and we have to take it all into consideration to stabilize our healthcare yeah. infrastructure. I got about a minute left. Yeah. Last question for you. Our home, our AR home is yeah. the Medicaid expansion program yes. that has gotten its waivers from the federal government. You guys yes. are set to move forward on that. Does Governor Sanders support its continuation? What have been the conversations you've had on that front? Well, I, I think we haven't had many because she's been really so focused on education and tax policy and criminal justice policy, which is great. Um, we, you know, we have enacted what I think is really great policy and did it with, in conjunction with some consultants who are now also on board here um, in the administration, her new administration. So the Our Home policy really is, I think, thoughtful, intentional, and it's, it's the healthcare policy that was lacking all this time to really improve health outcomes. If we're not improving health outcomes, then we really need to change gears and shift it up and change it. We've got a three quarters vote in both chambers to keep it funded, correct? Yeah, well, you know. We'll need one. Yeah, you yeah, think well, we'll get, we will you need think one. think it'll be there. I really do believe in what we're doing with the Life360 homes, you know, helping our, our maternal, um, maternal homes and helping young moms and children and veterans and, and folks that have been in the foster care settings. I mean, looking at the data has helped us drive that policy as to who are these folks that we're actually serving through this program and can we better meet their needs and improve our health outcomes as a state. And so that policy is very intentional and thoughtful and thorough. Missy Irvin is a Republican state senator from Mountain View and is the chair of the Senate Public Health Committee. She spoke with Roby Brock from our partner, Talk Business and Politics. State lawmakers have advanced a bill which would allow members of a fire department's bomb squad to carry firearms and make arrests. Members of the House Judiciary Committee yesterday unanimously approved House Bill 1018, sponsored by Republican Representative Stephen Meeks of Greenbrier. Meeks told committee members that bomb squad technicians in Arkansas are currently only allowed to carry a weapon with the permission of their local county sheriff. 
And what that does is that leaves our heroes heroes going into these situations unarmed, where a perpetrator may be still in the building, not able to defend themselves, and even more importantly, not having the means to be able to detain that perpetrator or to be able to stop them if they're in the midst of doing something nefarious. Representative Meek says some county sheriffs prohibit bomb squad personnel to be armed over liability concerns. Democratic Representative Nicole Clowney of Fayetteville questioned whether the bill would extend to firefighters the same liability protections, known as qualified immunity, which typically afforded to law enforcement officers. You know, I think when we talk about liability, we also have to consider qualified immunity. And will firefighters who are put in this position um, be subject to the protections of qualified immunity? Um, if something were to happen. The bill would require bomb technicians to undergo at least 120 hours of law enforcement-specific firearm training, as well as continuing education courses in order to carry a firearm on the job. It now goes to the full House for a vote. Almost to the beginning of the Ozark Mountain Music Festival in Eureka Springs. Later this hour, we talk with members from the Haymakers, one of the bands playing the festival, and we'll talk about inspirations for their songs. I was sitting at a place that's near the studio here. Um, it was once called Bill's Big Six Burgers, and uh, now is a lovely Mexican restaurant called El Patio, if you ever in Wichita. It's great. Um, but the Bill's Big Six, uh, this old boy Bill had had a uh, shrine in the place um, that kind of gave you the history of his uh, being a survivor of the Bataan Death March. The Haymakers blend traditional and new with their string music. A quick preview of what they'll do this weekend in Eureka in about 17 minutes. How can a shy country boy improve his chances with a much classier woman, especially when she's set to marry a flashy military man? Well, a little liquid courage might help. I'm Deborah Lou Harder for the Metropolitan Opera. Join me for Donizetti's delightful L'Elysir d'Amore, the elixir of love, our next live Saturday broadcast from the Met. Soprano Golda Schultz and tenor Javier Camarena star as the adorable will-they-won't-they couple Adina and Nemorino. Baritone Davide Luciano is the swaggering Sergeant Belcore, and baritone Ambrogio Maestri is the dubious Dr. Dulcamara. Michele Gamba conducts... Don't miss the humor and tenderness of the elixir of love. Saturday, live on the Toll Brothers Metropolitan Opera International Radio Network. You can hear this week's performance from the Met Opera Saturday at noon on KUAF2, our 24-hour classical station available for free on your digital radio. You can also listen at KUAF.com or by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF2. The Fort Smith Regional Art Museum is observing a 75th anniversary in 2023. For three quarters of a century, the museum, now affectionately called the RAM, has served as a place to exhibit art and welcome the community for classes and workshops. The museum's history connects back to an initial effort by the Arkansas Association of University Women. Julie Moncrief 
the development director for the museum, says during preparation for this 75th anniversary, she's been reading about the work to get what is now the Fort Smith Ram started. There are minutes and notes by the group of um, university women who wanted this and started having exhibitions anywhere in town they could and teaching lessons. And uh, different people way back then would write the story of the Fort Smith Art Center because it meant so much to them. And it goes through years of um, having campaigns where all the volunteers just knocked on doors with a can and got pennies, dimes, and quarters and were thrilled. But then in 1960 was when the Vaughn Shop House was given to the organization. So they moved in there in 1960, but it was 1968 when it was incorporated okay. and became a nonprofit. There have been quite a few changes for the museum since that collection of coins, including a move from a historic home on 6th Street to a former Arvest Bank building on Rogers Avenue in 2013. This new home allowed for the installation of climate-controlled and structural adaptations to allow traveling exhibits to be presented, along with the continuing efforts to showcase local and regional artists and their work. Last week, Julie Moncrief offered a quick tour of the museum. Um, we'll go down this cute little elevator to the lower floor, which has three things in it. One, the student gallery, sponsored by Arvest Foundation. Arvest gave us this bank. This weekend, the Ram kicks off the 75th anniversary with a trio of new exhibitions that simultaneously celebrate the museum's long mission to exhibit art from here and from further away. Each exhibition opens to members and supporters Saturday night and to the public on Sunday. Pablo Picasso, 25 years of ceramics from the Rosenbaum Collection, serves as the centerpiece of the new exhibitions. We'll have some 46 of Picasso's ceramic designs, and it's been interesting for some people to learn that he did ceramics. But he did what he wanted, I've learned, and experimented hugely. The dozens of ceramics included in the exhibition come from the artist's time in southern France and will be able to be viewed at the Ram through April 23rd. A second exhibition, 75 years, the Ram Permanent Collection, pulls from the more than 500 pieces the Ram has acquired in the past 75 years. And the third new exhibition, Art Center to Museum, the last 75 years, is a timeline taking visitors from those earliest days of fundraising to today. It will include a 15-foot montage of more than 300 photographs of people and events associated with the museum's history. Last week, in a darkened gallery not yet ready for public inspection, Julie Moncrief looked at the walls where the timeline would soon be installed. We're just hoping that so many people can come in and see themselves as 20 years younger, uh, or see their mom and dad, and just understand the huge amount, like you say, of involvement that makes like this possible. Um, and it will really show, it'll show our milestones, but it'll also show uh, focus on some important directors of the past. Both of the exhibitions focusing on the Rams' 75 years will be up through April 9th. All three of the collections can be viewed for free. The 75th anniversary year won't just be special collections. The emphasis on art education will remain part of the mission. There will continue to be the monthly paint and sip classes and the Thursday afternoon drop-in-and-draw live model art classes. And a continued dedication to student artists is still part of the focus, like the downstairs gallery currently dedicated to work from Fort Smith Southside students.
This whole area was packed the other night with proud parents and proud students and everybody standing next to their artwork and taking pictures. Um, and it, 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 it's a several different mediums. Um, this is, you know, cardboard sculpture. Later this semester, there will be art from students in Mina on those gallery walls. And later this year, other events tied to the 75th anniversary will take patrons outside the museum. A citywide scavenger hunt is promised, and at the end of the celebration, a time capsule will be buried on the Fort Smith Ram grounds. And then won't be open for 75 years, so we will have it um, in our historic timeline gallery um, you know, all through the year, and then a, a final party in December. In the spring, the museum's annual celebration gala will use Paris as inspiration. We'll hear more about that later this year on Ozarks at Large. And the annual Ram Invitational, a national competitive exhibition hosted by the museum since 1950, will open in late April and remain on display through late July. Julie Moncrief says while the year will explore art and artists beyond our region, the museum will also closely adhere to early founders' plans to establish a local base for art as well. We've been looking through reams and reams of saved newsletters and newspaper clippings and lots of tremendous quotes by people who put their blood, sweat, and tears into it as board members or, or staff members. And one of them, um, early on, a, a gentleman said, we will not be doing our job unless we're both providing opportunities to view art but also create art. It's just not complete unless you do that. The public can view the three new exhibitions beginning Sunday for free. And you can learn much more about the Fort Smith Ram at fsram.org. This is Ozarks at Large. Shiloh Museum of Ozark History hosts Bill Russell, Dr. Bill Lindsay, and Mary Ryan as they present the story of six doctors from four generations as they practice medicine with a family practice, Wednesday, January 18th at 6.30 p.m. This free event is also available to view online. Registration at shilohmuseum.org. This is Ozarks at Large. Earlier this month, DeMar Hamlin, a defensive player for the NFL team, the Buffalo Bills, suffered cardiac arrest during a game on the field. This traumatic experience has left many people asking questions about the future safety of the game and how the league should respond. On the debut episode of Season 4 of Undisciplined, Dr. Cree Banton and I spoke to Dr. Charles Ross, a professor of history at the University of Mississippi and an expert on sports and African-American history. In this excerpt, I asked Dr. Ross about player contracts in the NFL and why they aren't guaranteed the full length and money in the deal. It's pretty simple. The NFL owners are some of the most powerful group of men, and and there's a there's a, a woman also, a couple of women that are part of that ownership group. Thirty two owners. They develop a system that. Um, it's one of the most economically beneficial systems for ownership in the United States of America. And as long as your labor force is willing to capitulate and go along with that system, then you're going to continue to have that system. The NFL, they typically do not want to extend guaranteed contracts. Deshaun Watson signed a highly unusual, a contract that may, in fact, begin to facilitate uh, some fundamental differences in the overall way in which labor and management function. 
Uh, he signed a fully guaranteed $230 million contract with the Cleveland Browns. That is not ha- that has not happened before. So most NFL contracts, um, NFL players get their money basically on the front end through the signing bonus. Uh, the signing bonus is guaranteed money. Outside of that, you can be cut, released, and then they don't have to pay you the rest of the money. Um, and as you're alluding to, yes, in um, the NBA and Major League Baseball and those two sports, uh, those contracts are fully guaranteed. So, um, the, but the argument is the ideal ideology behind it is that NFL owners feel like, well, what happened with Demar Hamlin can happen, that a NFL player's career can come to an end just off of one play. Anything can happen. Anything can fluky can happen. Injuries are a fundamental part of this sport. We understand it on both sides, labor and, man- and management. And so labor has uh, kind of accepted the fact that um, we can't necessarily have guaranteed contracts because um, injury can happen any minute, any hour, any time an uh, individual takes the field. So you're just gambling with your body out there. Yes, you're gambling with your body. Absolutely. And you understand that um, this is an opportunity for you to, say, for example, leave the University of Arkansas, get drafted, get a signing bonus, um, try to make a team as a high rank draft choice, work your way onto a roster. Um, And then maybe potentially after a couple of years, um, three or four years, maybe five at the max, sign a big time deal. Um, so that you can have a certain amount of security, maybe, for the rest of your life and help to provide for your family. Um, And so when you look at individuals um, who are in this uh, profession, they understand the risks. Um, They understand how precarious this is. But they also understand that uh, this is an opportunity to make more money, uh, generational money, uh, if things work out for me. Uh, than if I was someone uh, taking your class, teaching history uh, for 30 years. Uh, And so that's the decision that these individuals are making. Of course, a fraction of them are actually living out those kinds of dreams and achieving those kind of goals and objectives. But the fact of the matter is they feel like also the publicity and everything else that comes along with it um, is worth it. Korea, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this or not, but there's a running joke with people who are either former NFL athletes or, or follow the sport pretty closely that NFL stands for not for long. Uh, not for long. That's I'm right. Not gonna be here for long. Not for but, long. <laughs> but I'm I'm wondering, you know, the intersection um, as a sports historian and you know the kinds of direct ra- ways that this intersects with race. I'd like you to speak on that, and especially, you know, probably I'd like your opinion on if you think all of this stuff would be are more tolerated because it's black bodies on the line and given the history out of which black bodies are coming from. If this is the foundation upon which we kind of see that kind of a fungibility that we see in the NFL where black bodies are concerned. I don't think there's any question about that. I think that you yourself, you're asking a question because you. you <laughs> it's a leading you know question, that, that Your Honor. I mean, for the uh, and, viewers. And, 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 and you know <laughs> yeah. what's, what's interesting is that 
Let's look at the uh, protests that were facilitated by Colin Kaepernick. There were a lot of comments, a lot of perspectives, the flag and the anthem and being disrespectful and so on and so forth. And the president of the United States, in a lot of ways, kind of in the, in the way in which he articulated things, uh, for the most part during his four-year terms, very simplistically, very, very, very to the point so that there's no confusion. He, in essence, articulated, really, he was speaking to the owners when he said, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Aren't you paying these guys? These, these guys work for you. They're workers. They're, they, whether they're picking cotton, they're picking tobacco, they're doing sugar cane, or they're playing football. You paid their salaries. Stand up and act like you're the owners of these individuals and get these guys back in line. You know, he didn't talk about the issue that had Colin Kaepernick upset, which was racial discrimination in this country, police brutality. Absolutely not. He talked about power and where it resided and where it's always kind of resided in this country. And he wanted basically these white owners to act like white owners and, and, and stand up. And, and why are you sitting up here in the background apologizing and, and, and around here trying to make statements and trying to get your fan base and people to feel like, hey, they can come to a Dallas Cowboy or Houston Texan or whatever game it is and not feel insulted, you better get you get your get your workers in line. And so, in essence, yes, that's that's where we are because you have a labor population that seems to be inexhaustible. Um, when the individuals landed on the coast of Africa. Uh, one of the things that facilitated this slave trade is that it seemed like there was this inexhaustible supply of Africans, regardless of how many you captured and put in holds of ships and brought them to the Caribbean or North America, you could still continue to keep bringing them more and more. Um, and so it's the same same kind of ideology that uh, these individuals are going to continue to try to go to college, coming out of these uh, communities. They're going to continue to try and follow this dream. And then they're also, again, as you insinuate, uh, there's a lot of control that uh, is an underlying uh, component of this. You know, it's going to be very interesting to see as we move forward because the DeMar Hamlin um, incident is going to really put some pressure on the National Football League because the young man – may not be able to play football again. Um, and so now he's in this position. Does he risk now his total health in trying to come back? Is the team going to be willing to give him an opportunity? Probably not. He hasn't made a lot of money. He hasn't got an opportunity to get to that second contract. Is the NFL going to really take care of him? And so health care has been an overriding issue with the National Football League over the last 10 or 15 years they've had lawsuits they've been trying to address it in a kind of politically publicly meaningful way very interesting to see what they do with this young man and how this plays itself out and whether or not the nfl comes up with some way to do something for him in terms of uh, economics dr charles ross will be speaking at the university of arkansas on january 30th as part of the timothy donovan lecture series you can find more information about his lecture and the podcast at our website, KUAF.com.
This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Matthew, you often ride your bicycle to work. I do. You didn't today? No, not today. A little too wet. All right. Uh, some. This is a big bicycle area. Of course. I guess cycling. You cycling. can tell someone who doesn't cycle much because they say bicycle a lot. Uh, I did not know how to ride a bicycle until I was in my 30s. Yeah. Okay. I knew much sooner than that. Well, that's good. I was about eight. Uh, did you know that you could... <laughs> that's... That's great. You can sign up now for the spring 2023 edition of the Square to Square bike ride. That's right. Uh, it's May 6th. It starts at Walker Park in Fayetteville, and then it will finish at Lawrence Plaza in Bentonville. Almost all, if not all, along the Razorback Greenway. Yes. Uh, you can register until May 3rd. The fees are from 20 to $35. Optional fee for shuttle service if you don't want to do the whole thing back again. Also a virtual ride option, so if you're somewhere else. You can do it, Mm -hmm. which is cool. It is nice. Yeah. Um, (laughs) More information available at BentonvilleAR.com. What do you think? Uh, I I tell you what. So my my child is due in early June, and I've made the commitment, and I'm making the commitment here on Ozarks at Large, that I'm going to do the spring version of the Square to Square. Yeah, fall, you start at Lawrence Plaza and go to Walker Park. Yeah, and I will also have a a months-old child. So All right. Well, anyway, uh, registration available at BentonvilleAR.com. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like out of this world. And liftoff of Artemis One. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Morning edition, every weekday morning, including tomorrow from 5 to 9 on KUAF. The Ozark Mountain Music Series opens its ninth year tomorrow night. The Indoor Winter Festival takes place at the Basin Park Hotel in downtown Eureka Springs. As torrents of rain fell this morning, the idea of an indoor music festival was confirmed as brilliant. But Osmo Moo, as regulars call it, has more than just climate control. The eclectic lineup of artists keeps bringing people back. This year's roster includes the primarily string band, the Haymakers from Wichita, Kansas. Strings, yes. Bluegrass mostly, but not only. Town by ferry boat, wearing but an overcoat to sing a couple songs I wrote on. Uh-huh. Ate my share of sugar cane, played for tips along Bullfane, never could forget my shame. Uh-huh. A lot of good girls will go bad, leave their mother and their dad in Charleston. The Haymakers will perform tomorrow night at six in the Basin Park. Last week we called two members of the band. Dustin Arbuckle, harmonica and vocals, and Tom Page, guitar, to ask about the return to Eureka, a few songs, and what they play. We actually have this conversation a lot where, you know, people see string band and they sort of automatically think bluegrass, but I I, I do think folk or Americana is maybe kind of a better way to refer to us because we do bring in a lot of influence. Well, we are definitely influenced by bluegrass music. We bring in a lot of influence from like traditional blues and Western swing and honky tonk country and other forms of American roots music as well. So we, I think we have a lot of fun with the fact that we, we feel like we can pretty effectively and tastefully deliver a a lot of different things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I, I think we're always looking to be outside of 
whatever box somebody might be suggesting. Right. Um, but within the string band genre, there are certain limitations we grapple with. And, uh, oh, um, you know, I think we got out of mentioning the word bluegrass a long time ago, um, along the lines of uh, childhood trauma. You know, <laughs> I was dressed down several times as a young person for thinking I had anything uh, close to bluegrass coming out of my playing. And, uh, you know, purists get into whatever thing they want, and uh, we've decided it's easier just to avoid all that. Say sure, there's no banjo, there's whatever, you know. It's um it's good music rooted in the tradition and hopefully people will be open to uh, experiencing it. This is Tom. I, I grew up in a folk music commune, as it were, here in Wichita as a group of people that had a not for profits art center. And definitely there is a certain style of string band music that I find to be the kind I want to play. And I can't expressly define that but i think that the haymakers output is definitely a result of that quest yeah and and i think for me kind of along the same lines i grew up um after discovering blues music in my mid-teens was really more heavily focused on that for several years before i got interested in in more string band oriented music like bluegrass um and things like that so I think not that you can't do blues in a string band format because there's a lot of, a lot of good stuff made, uh, good blues stuff made, but it wasn't the stuff I had been focusing on. So I think I, I bring, I've, I've had to figure out over the years how to adapt all that more classic blues influence to work the best way within our kind of format as well, while also learning about all these other things. Well, Dustin Arbuckle, let me ask you about that, because if you got into blues first, is that where the harmonica first hit you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I always liked to sing. And uh, in my mid-teens, when I was getting into a lot of the classic Chicago blues stuff and Mississippi blues stuff and things like that, I started thinking about wanting to maybe try to find some guys I could start a band with. And, you know, my dad told me well you can't just sing you got to play something <laughs> and uh so i i decided to try harmonica first because i figured it was the uh the cheapest and most portable option and if i wasn't any good at it we weren't out like hundreds of dollars so i could find out you at least got to own a pa right um but then uh yeah so i mean the first harmonica player who really bit me was uh Sonny boy williamson number two um, guys like him, you know, little Walter Jacobs and Sonny Terry and, and people like that. And uh, those guys are still a, a massive influence on my playing. I had mentioned Thanks. to Dustin in an email that I really, really am moved uh, by the song Lights Along Broadway. What can you all tell me about well, that? Well, um, okay, the brief story is uh, I was sitting at a place that's near the studio here, um, it was once called Bill's Big Six Burgers, and uh, now is a lovely Mexican restaurant called El Patio, if you ever in Wichita, it's great. Um, but the Bill's Big Six, uh, this old boy Bill had had a uh, shrine in the place um, that kind of gave you the history of his uh, being a survivor of the Bataan Death March mm. and had some photos of other veterans and, you know, kind of like a history of the thing and this little shrine with some I guess you would call military ephemera that he had. And uh, 
anyway, I'd like to go in there when I was a kid and talk to Bill and my dad would take me in there. He is also a veteran. Um, and Bill will tell you all kinds of things that we can't say on the radio, um, you know, of, of interest and color to young boys. Um, anyhow, so Dustin's father's a veteran. My father was a veteran. You know, we, we have all these deceased veterans hanging around us, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I come from a military family and, you know, growing up with these guys, you get the good, the bad, and the ugly about what their years of service were like. And, um, the song was a, an attempt to encapsulate the stories of a bunch of different people that I've known and in some way try to be sensitive to the cost of war at home, you know, that, that these guys aren't done with the experience once they come back. came back from Iraq with a crack in his back and a powerful pain He washed it all down with some scotch Oxycontin never quite right again The lights along Broadway remind me of Christmas somehow It's too bad you're not around Saturday night in this pack and plant town Ronnie come home from the numb With a hole in his arm and a terrible need No matter how much he did Never forget all the things he had seen Lights along Broadway remind me of Christmas songs. Tom, I've never written a song, but I can't imagine trying to write a song that feels like it has more responsibility attached to it than that one. Well, I mean, there is something to that. And, oh, you know, maybe I'm too sensitive. I have a tendency to write songs that make me want to cry, and then I don't like playing them anymore. Um <laughs> But over time, you, you kind of get to where you can conjure the emotional content without having a breakdown. Um, that one I had phased out for a while just because of not being not wanting to live that emotion. Um, but it's a strong song, and uh, Dustin is singing it well, and so that uh, that helps me be able to hold it back a little bit. And, and again, I, I like your word responsibility. I think my biggest concern in the writing of it was to deal sensitively with these issues, but also to, to be really honest about it. So to hopefully come out with something that people can enjoy and that doesn't piss off certain factions. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, Tom, that's always been one of my favorite songs that Tom has written. And, and part of that is, is because of my own experience of having a, a Vietnam vet as a father. And, and like you talk about, there's a lot of responsibility to that song and there's a lot of emotional content to that song and to where like when we kind of brought it back and I started singing it, I had trouble getting through it at times mm -hmm. too because of knowing what my dad went through and knowing what I went through as the child of a person who was a post-traumatic stress case veteran. And so it, it's something that, you know, I, I hope we're delivering it in a way like Tom said that, that is sensitive to what those veterans have gone through, but while also being pretty honest about 
the cost of war and, and, and showing them that respect. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Dustin Arbuckle and Tom Page from the band Haymakers out of Wichita, Kansas. Going to be part of Osmo Move, the, Oz, the Ozark Mountain Music Festival in Eureka Springs coming up uh, in just a bit in Eureka. Did, did either of you know about Osmo Move before you were contacted to play it this year? Yeah. We actually played it uh, in 2020. <laughs> ah, um, we started off quite a bang in 2020 with uh, Ozark Mountain Music. Uh, then we did the Kansas Bluegrass uh, Association Winter Fest. Uh, then, just as we were poised for, uh, I don't know what sort of um, explosive uh, activity, um, you know, we and everyone else found out that music business was canceled for the next year. Yeah, this pesky, deadly pandemic that we all had to deal with. <laughs> yeah. You can find out more about Haymakers at haymakers316.com. Well, then what song should I end our visit together with? Well, that's an interesting question. I always have a tendency to go back to the roots on the thing and maybe would suggest something like the Clinch Mountain Backstep um, that's the last song on that art church. But perhaps Dustin has a different idea. Uh, More traditional kind of songs that we play would be a, a way to go. All right. Dustin Arbuckle and Tom Page are with Haymakers from Wichita. They are part of Osmo Moo later this month at Eureka Springs in the Basin Park Hotel. Gentlemen, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Kyle.
guys, we're haymakers. The Haymakers will play at 6 o'clock tomorrow night at the Basin Park Hotel in Eureka Springs as part of the Ozark Mountain Music Festival. You can find out more about them at haymakers316.com. More about the festival at ozarkmountainmusicfestival.com. Just announced, Incubus is returning to the Walmart Amp this summer with special guests Coheed and Cambria, Friday, May 26th. Tickets go on sale this Friday at 10 a.m. at amptickets.com. Tomorrow in Ozarks, an unsolved murder from the Gilded Age has attracted the attention of two riders with deep northwest Arkansas ties. We'll learn about the amazing life and then death of Benjamin J. Burton. A short version, I guess, was he was uh, a free man, always a free man, came from Connecticut, actually went to the gold rush, made some money in California. And you have to remember that he was a free man in, in California, he was exposing himself to being made a slave. So, uh, but he was successful. He came back to Newport. He bought a house with his money and he started working for people. That story and how childhood friends who grew up here became interested in it on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF. You can also listen through the KUAF app, through KUAF.com and by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. When Sarah Jones was growing up, her parents didn't talk about adopting her from Korea. They just wanted her to be happy. They want to just instill love, like, from the moment you're adopted, which I think is a very common instinct. But certainly there's this silencing factor that plays out in international adoption. How to take care of our loved ones and ourselves. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. TED Radio Hour, Sunday afternoon at 1 on KUAF. The NPR Student Podcast Challenge is underway. It's the fifth year that classrooms around the country can participate to give a voice to the youngest generation. Brandon Tabor with our partner station, KASU in Jonesboro, talked with Janet Lee from the NPR education team to talk about how classrooms in Arkansas can participate. How did this uh, challenge start? Yeah, this challenge started five years ago. Um initially from my boss, Steve Drummond, uh, the executive producer of NPR's Education Desk and former um, lead editor on Code Switch podcast. It was kind of a baby idea where he didn't exactly know how big it was going to grow, right? At that time, podcasting wasn't as big, especially among young people. It wasn't really like a class. um, It wasn't a class that was being regularly taught in middle school, high school. Even when I was in school at that time, there wasn't a podcasting class specific to college level either. So it really started as an idea to get more younger voices and a diverse range of voices on NPR's air. We wanted to hear from students, tell their own stories as an initiative to get their stories on the radio and on different podcasts across NPR. And since then, we've gotten over thousands of entries every year. It has really grown in ways we didn't expect, which is really exciting. And I will say with the pandemic year 2020, we really saw a lot of students speaking to their experiences in the moment, right? So that year, we got a lot of stories on the pandemic. We've since then been getting a lot of stories about family when students were really living at home, a lot of stories on mental health. So it's also been really interesting to capture those stories from younger voices in um, their own ways of processing what's happening in the news. So you've had a lot of chances to listen to a lot of different uh, entries. Uh, Which entry stood out to you the most? I want to say we had one finalist entry in 2020 that was from Arkansas, from Bentonville, and we continue to get entries from the member station area and schools in the school district. Um, It was about a student who had just moved to Arkansas and to the United States from Australia. And it 
started off with her telling us the story of her mom sharing that they will be moving in the next um, month or so to the United States by buying her cocoa puffs, which was her favorite treat. And it kind of like lists everything that was new to her that, you know, to some of us, we're like, okay, that's like every little thing that we see every day. But she really unpacked the experiences of living in Arkansas, which was a really delightful story. That's from our finalists in 2020, if you want to check it out. Cocoa Puffs, huh? <laughs> Cocoa Puffs, yep. Cocoa Puffs. <laughs> oh, wow. That's awesome. Uh, so how can uh, teachers and classrooms, how can they get involved in this challenge? Yeah, I first want to say if this is your first time, whether you're a teacher or a student submitting to the Student Podcast Challenge, we have so many new student entries every year. So don't be afraid. Um, for teachers, we have a curriculum guide on our website at npr.org, kind of guiding us through guiding you through how you could start a class or a lesson plan for podcasting, starting from how to spot a story that's good for audio to how to narrow it down and cut it down to our maximum time, which is eight minutes. And for students, there's also a guide for students on how to sometimes rewrite your writing in like an audio voice. And there's another one for how to use music. So there are separate guides for teachers and students that you can check out. And if you are looking for any additional information, we have a landing page at npr.org slash student podcast challenge 2023, where you can find more information. And one other tip I would suggest is I would first go through and read our announcement page, where we also link the rules and guidelines. And if you are really not sure where to get started, it's also so great to listen to previous winning and finalist entries to just give you a better idea of what kind of stories our judges are drawn to and what sort of um, podcasts that we're looking for for the contest. Okay. And from what I understand, uh, there are a couple of story prompts on there for some ideas, but generally there is no limit on what kind of stories that uh, people can submit for this, correct? Yes, absolutely not. We are, however, introducing a new thematic award for podcasts on mental health. Um, year after year, especially during the pandemic, we've been getting a lot of stories on students processing the pandemic or remote hybrid school experiences and talking about mental health in their own ways. There is no specific way we're narrowing this down. And ultimately, we're just excited for students to tell whatever stories they're drawn to. It can be interviewing someone they're dying to talk to, any topic that they're interested in exploring, um, it could be an adaptation of a school project that they worked on. So anything, we're just open to good stories. Uh, I want to switch gears just a little bit and just so briefly. Um, the students and the teachers who participate in this contest, uh, what has been their reaction like? Uh, what has been their comments about what they get out of this? Yeah. So especially during the holidays, um, we re-announced the 2023 contest, or we announced the 2023 contest. And one of the biggest delights of working on this is hearing from teachers year after year. Some of the teachers shared that I got this Christmas gift from one of the students I worked on this with. This was one of my favorite lesson plans that I've ever worked on. So it's been really cool to also see how much teachers are engaging with their students. Year after, we also have some states or schools that we have teachers like submitting year after year as part of their built-in curriculum. So if you are interested in trying this out this year, it is something that could be built into your regular um, classroom activity or lesson plan years moving forward. And it's really cool because it gives students um, to tell their stories in like a different way than writing or like it's a, just like a different like art or storytelling form. So we strongly encourage that. We also hear from students um, 
one of my favorite things about hearing from students is seeing the way they process the stories that they are telling for us. So if it's a story that they've shared with us on identity or like names, we hear them processing um, and growing throughout the like seven or eight minutes they share with us and their reflections on that when we get to speak with them after the contest. So I think for both teachers and students, it's just like a really fun way to engage with everything. That's Janet Lee with the NPR education team. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Janet Lee with the NPR education team spoke with Brandon Tabor from our partner station KASU. Submissions can be turned in now until April 28th. Grand prize winners for middle and high schoolers will get a visit from the NPR education team and have their story aired nationally during an NPR news magazine show. Finalists will receive a swag bag for participating. A link to learn more about the challenge and its official rules and submission guidelines can be found at npr.org slash student podcast challenge 2023. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Chaffee Crossing. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Karee Banton, Roby Brock, and Brandon Tabor. Additional content today provided by the newsroom at KUAR, Public Radio in Little Rock and Central Arkansas. Matthew produced today's program inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Be well.